Kelly Bechtel here today with Dr. Nathan Lee, who's an assistant clinical professor of radiation oncology at University of Tennessee. And today he's going to be telling us all about radiation oncology. So Dr. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today for our podcast. Thanks for having me. So I know very, very little about radiation therapy. The only experience I had was with my own pit bull who had a brain tumor who ended up having non-traditional RT and instead had stereotactic radiation therapy or what they call SRT instead. And I would say even as a specialist in emergency critical care, I really had no idea about radiation therapy and was wondering if you could just walk us through what RT is, what it entails, what are some potential complications, and what are the ideal cases to refer to a radiation oncologist for therapy? Um, yeah, I think that's a common problem in veterinary medicine in general. Is, um, I don't think that a lot of veterinarians know about radiation therapy or they've only superficially heard about radiation therapy um, or they've had a loved one, unfortunately, who's had to undergo radiation therapy. And so I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about veterinary radiation therapy and, and kind of this big black hole uh, where uh, people don't know um, a lot about it. And as much as it's trying to become more and more a part of education in veterinary schools, it's still not very well taught and, pardon the pun, not a lot of students are exposed to radiation therapy when they when they go through vet school uh, quite frequently. So, yeah, so radiation therapy is using high-energy x-rays in order to treat tumor cells. And the whole goal really is to damage the DNA in the tumor cells so that when the tumor cells try to divide, they can't and they die. And in most cases, uh, that's really what we're aiming for, um, is to damage the DNA. There's a couple of tumors, uh, particularly round cell tumors, uh, that tend to respond a little bit faster to radiation therapy because they die by uh, apoptosis or a programmed cell death, and they're much more sensitive to radiation therapy. But in the vast majority of cases, for most of your soft tissue sarcomas, your carcinomas, they're all going to die by what's called a mitotic death. And I think that's important for practitioners to know um, because that is going to dictate a little bit on how well we expect the tumor to respond to radiation in that a very low-grade, slowly growing tumor, while it will respond to radiation, it sometimes can take a number of weeks to even months before we see any significant response, whereas a very fast-growing, rapidly dividing, very anaplastic tumor tends to respond a lot quicker um, to radiation. You can see those shrink down sometimes within a couple of days to a couple of weeks of starting radiation. The catch to that is that a lot of times those really rapidly growing anaplastic tumors tend to recur a lot faster than the low-grade tumors as well. In terms of what tumors we can treat, really, I always kind of joke with my medical oncology colleagues here that we can treat really any tumor with radiation therapy. It's a question of whether we should or not. Mainly, you can think of radiation therapy as an extension of surgery. So any tumor that you would normally try to surgically excise can be treated with radiation therapy. We're there either to treat a tumor that can't be accessed surgically, such as brainstem tumors or ventral brain masses, or tumors that are just too large that surgery cannot completely remove the tumor and there's microscopic disease left behind. And obviously, in terms of response to radiation, the less tumor cells there are, the better the long-term response. So a big, gross, bulky disease, we don't expect to have as long a tumor control over as a incompletely excised soft tissue sarcoma that's down to microscopic disease. 
I think one of the biggest misconceptions out there in veterinary medicine is about side effects to the radiation therapy. I think most people hear radiation therapy and they immediately think about the radiation burns that people get. And uh, there's some, if you Google it uh, online, there's some pretty horrific pictures of some some pretty good skin effects uh, on animals. I will say with the new equipment that we have, the side effect profile is a lot better than what it used to be when we used to use orthovoltage machines, which were mainly treating superficial layers or cobalt machines, which didn't have very good depth penetration. Most of your modern uh, linear accelerators now have the ability for skin sparing, meaning that it takes some time or some distance in the body for the radiation dose to build up. Uh, For most linear accelerators, that's about a centimeter and a half of depth. So for any tumor that's not right on the surface of the skin, we can avoid treating the skin and getting any of the burns. So we don't expect to have skin effects for brain tumors, prostate tumors, transitional cell carcinomas of the bladder, lung tumors, adrenal tumors, um, again, any deep-seated mass that we're treating. As for the Superficial tumors, you know, scar lines for your uh, soft tissue sarcomas, scar lines for your mast cell tumors, those ones we do have to target the skin, and so we will get some side effects. And the biggest side effect that we get is that radiation burn, which is really called moist desquamation. It's not actually a burn because burn actually involves blistering of the skin. Uh, what we're doing is, you know, we're damaging the layers of the skin that are coming off from the basement membrane. It takes about three weeks for the cells that are coming off from the basement membrane to reach the surface of the skin. And so really for the first three weeks of therapy, we don't expect there to be any change to the surface of the skin that we're treating. During that third week, that's when that top layer finally comes off and the cells that are supposed to come up and replace it have been damaged by the radiation over the last three weeks. The body's response to that is just to lay down a big scab, a crust um, over the radiation field. And it can look pretty bad, but with the proper education of your clients, I've never had an owner come back and say, boy, I wish we hadn't done that. Usually that uh, moist desquamation is going to last for about two to three weeks after the radiation treatment is done. Then you're going to have nice, new, pink, healthy skin, and eventually the fur typically grows back in about six months and usually grows back in in a slightly different color. In terms of treating that moist desquamation, which I think is the side effect that most general practitioners need to deal with. Really, it's just um, like any superficial irritation. We're going to have the owners clean the site um, at least once a day to try to help keep it clean. Um, Also, by cleaning it and removing those crusts, we help to speed up re-epithelialization. And then we're going to put them on um, oral pain medications, typically start them on a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug if they can tolerate it um, during the first two weeks of therapy to make sure that they're tolerating it okay. And then during the third week of therapy, we'll start them typically on gabapentin, usually at around a 5 milligram per kilogram dose twice a day up to 10 milligrams per kilogram twice a day. For the vast majority of dogs, that's really all you need. Unless the radiation moist desquamation is going to be in an area that's under constant motion, like in the axillary area or the inguinal area, most dogs are pretty comfortable with just an inset and in, in gabapentin. For those ones that are in areas of constant movement, uh, we may occasionally add in some tramadol um, in order to help with the pain, but uh, I'd say that's pretty rare in my experience uh, over the last seven years that I've been doing this. Topically, um, there's a whole bunch of different ointments out there on the market. Um, again, if you Google uh, radiation dermatitis and treatments, there's over a thousand different creams out there on the market, uh, which tells you that really none of them work that great. So really, we just try to have the owners clean the site, maybe occasionally apply some topical ointments just to keep the area moist so that those crusts can easily come off. 
But with time, um, it's going to heal uh, no matter what. The other side effect that we worry about is what's called late side effects to radiation therapy. And I think this is another thing that there's a lot of misconceptions out there about. So late side effects are going to be side effects that are going to happen six months to years after radiation therapy. And those late side effects typically involve necrosis of tissue, fibrosis of tissue or scarring of that tissue, um, or secondary tumor formation. With the current definitive radiation protocols that we have, the chances of a late side effect developing in a dog is very, very small. Um, and typically, if we do get a late side effect to develop, it means that they've done something right and that they've lived a number of years after radiation therapy. And that's something I always talk to owners about, but it's definitely not something that we encounter that often. I would say in the last, again, last seven years, um, I've seen maybe three cases of late side effects in an animal. And all three of those cases were uh, dogs that were out almost five years um, after treating soft tissue sarcomas or a spinal um, mass in one dog. Um, so they typically um, are the dogs that are going to do very, very well um, with treatment that may develop those late side effects. That's all fantastic information. So um, I guess one question I have is, A, how much is the cost? B, um, how do animals handle the either daily anesthesia? I know it's very, very brief, but can you tell me how many minutes they're down for? And is it typically done by, you know, propofol or by inhalant? And the other question is, What's the difference between prognostic factors, like prognosis-wise, cost-wise? Is it better to find a place that does traditional RT or find a place that does SRT or CyberKnife? And can you explain what that even is? Uh, in terms of the different treatments that we have right now in veterinary medicine for dogs and cats, the conventional radiation therapy treatment um, is to do what's called uh, fractionated uh, protocols, where we give a small dose of radiation once a day, typically Monday through Friday, for anywhere from three to six weeks. But the unfortunate thing in, in veterinary radiation oncology is there's really no um, standard of care. So each um, institution kind of has their different protocols that they feel comfortable with. Here at the University of Tennessee, um, we do three gray fractions once a day, Monday through Friday, for 16 to 19 treatments. Um, usually 16 treatments for tumors that we feel are a little bit more um, radioresponsive, like carcinomas, mast cell tumors, brain tumors, and 19 treatments for soft tissue sarcomas um, and, and other tumors that we may not feel are as responsive to radiation. And it also is a little bit indicative of the normal tissues in the area that we're worried about. Again, for brain tumors, we typically take them to 16 treatments because brain tissue, if you try to take them um, higher than 51 gray or so, you can start to have more late or chance of having late side effects than if you try to keep them under 51 gray. And that's in contrast to palliative radiation therapy, which I can talk about uh, a little bit later on. There's a lot of talk now about stereotactic radiotherapy or stereotactic radiosurgery. The difference there is that the true definition of stereotactic radiosurgery means one dose of radiation, uh, where you're getting an extremely large amount of radiation one time. And the way that uh, we're allowed to do that is that we can break up the dose, let's say we give 20 gray at one time into hundreds of small little pencil beam, about a half centimeter by half centimeter size fields that come in from multiple angles around the tumor. And so you're essentially spreading that 20 gray that the center of the tumor is getting 
out over all the normal tissues in a 360-plus degree line around the patient. And that, again, allows the normal tissues to get less dose, but the center of the tumor to get the the maximum 20 gray. There are a couple of institutions that offer that therapy now. Um, The biggest one that has the most research associated with it is uh, Colorado State University. North Carolina State University has one now. Florida has one. And I think that's it for um, academic institutions that have stereotactic um, abilities. And again, the stereotactic ones that we typically think of are still delivered by a linear accelerator. So they also have the ability to do conventional fractionated protocols as well as a stereotactic uh, therapy with their linear accelerators. There are a couple of CyberKnife facilities out there as well. And CyberKnife are really just taking the linear accelerator head um, and putting it on a robotic arm um, that used to be a part of the automobile industry. Um, and the advantage of that is that that arm is kind of freely movable around the patient, and then the table that the patient is sitting on is also uh, freely movable to a degree. And so you can spread that dose out over even more beams, and there's, depending on the physicist that you talk to, some argument on whether CyberKnife can actually get the smaller than a half centimeter by half centimeter field, so you can actually treat with even smaller beams. So again, you can uh, theoretically go to a higher dose to the tumor and spread it out over all your normal tissues so that you don't get any um, acute side effects to it. The advantage of doing um, stereotactic radiation therapy is that it's typically um, only one treatment if you're actually doing stereotactic radiosurgery uh, or up to three to five treatments if you're doing what's called stereotactic radiotherapy, which is, again, where you kind of take a large dose, say 20 gray, and divide it out over two or three treatments instead of just giving it as one. And again, the advantage of that is that you're sparing your normal tissues from potentially getting higher uh, radiation doses and giving them a chance between treatments to repair any damage that the radiation may have caused. When stereotactic radiotherapy and surgery uh, first came out, um, it was the latest, greatest thing, and we were all really excited about it and was um, thinking that we were going to be able to get rid of the typically fractionated protocols that were used in veterinary patients to be able to get all of our patients treated in a couple of days and then send them home, which is great. It turns out that that's not actually the case. There's actually a number of tumors that you cannot treat with stereotactic radiotherapy or that are not recommended uh, for stereotactic radiotherapy at this point. And that's, again, from a lot of the research out of Colorado that they've done. So now stereotactic radiotherapy is really best for fairly round tumor that's still there, a big uh, gross tumor that's still there. You can't use stereotactic radiotherapy to treat a scar line. Um, That still is best treated with the um, conventional fractionated protocol. You can't, uh, ideally, they found that um, trying to treat um, pituitary masses with stereotactic radiotherapy um, as a first line of therapy is probably not the best because the optic chiasm that sits right near the tumor gets too high of a dose and they've had a number of those dogs um, develop blindness as a late side effect uh, to the therapy. Um, Also found that um, nasal tumors are probably not best treated with stereotactic radiotherapy as a first line therapy because you're giving such a large dose and it's almost impossible to avoid the bones of the nasal cavity when you're treating a nasal tumor that we're starting to see a lot of late side effects um, with these dogs because of the high single fraction dose that they were getting. And so we're seeing a lot of radioosteonecrosis of the bones. And so now it's recommended that pituitary masses and nasal tumors get a course of 
fractionated radiotherapy first and then follow um, once you have recurrence or if you have any residual disease after the um, conventional uh, therapy, then do a, a boost uh, of dose using uh, stereotactic uh, radiosurgery or, again, stereotactic radiotherapy to that tumor area to try to clear up or shrink any reoccurrence that happens there. In terms of cost of therapy, um, that is kind of all over the board as well, depending on where you're at. Typically, a definitive course of radiation therapy, again, either a fractionated course over three to six weeks or the stereotactic radiotherapy or surgery, it's going to run you somewhere between 5000 up to seven or $8,000. Typically, palliative treatments where we're trying to give a large dose of radiation over a short period of time in order to make an animal feel more comfortable or to help take away an obstruction or something like that that the tumor is causing. That typically runs a little bit less, um, somewhere around $1,000 to $3,000, uh, typically what I've, what I've heard around the country. Um, UT, we charge $5,000 for definitive radiation therapy and $2,500 for palliative radiation therapy is our estimates that we typically give owners. And again, that'll vary slightly depending on how involved the tumor is, how big it is, how many treatments we're giving, depending on uh, what the organs at risk are around that tumor area. And again, uh, in terms of palliation, um, how many treatments we actually give in order to get a response. That was fantastic. Anything else you want to include? Yeah, so if um, you think that you have a patient that has a tumor that uh, may be treated with radiation therapy, you know, we're always happy to uh, consult with you on the phone um, or um, have the patient um, come and see us. We're more than happy to consult with the uh, owners as well to see if radiation therapy is really the best um, treatment for their dog or cat. So one other thing I'll add in there is in terms of um, cats, cats are actually fairly unique um, in that they tend to tolerate radiation therapy a lot better than dogs and people do. So all the side effects that I talked about with dogs in terms of the moist desquamation um, and stuff, um, we very rarely see that in cats, and we can typically take cats to a lot higher total dose than we can dogs because their um, side effects are significantly less. And again, in cats, tumors that we typically treat, the most common one that we treat is the vaccine-associated fibrosarcomas in cats um, after they've been incompletely excised or even if they've been completely excised but they've got very narrow margins on there, we would still recommend uh, following up with definitive therapy, and that's been shown to give them the longest survival times. Cats can uh, handle a significantly larger amount of radiation without really significant side effects. They still lose their fur, but in terms of the moist desquamation, typically all we really get is just a kind of a dry, flaky skin um, in the radiation site. We typically don't get any other um, significant effects from it. And no problems with anesthetizing them every day? In terms of our treatments, um, unfortunately, our patients do need to stay still in the room and we can't stay in there with them when they're getting treated. So patients do need to be um, anesthetized or heavily sedated. And again, this is going to vary depending on the institution that you go to. Most radiation oncologists that I talk with, if the um, dog or cat has a head or neck tumor um, or has to be treated on their back, uh, we'll typically completely anesthetize them, typically with propofol um, induction, and then maintain them on uh, either isofluorine or fluorine um, under anesthesia. For most peripheral limb tumors and uh, other scar lines that we're treating that don't involve the head and neck, most of those animals can be treated with just um, heavy sedation. Um, I use a lot of 
dexmedetomidine and anafetin uh, on patients. And, um, you know, you can uh, intravenously give the dexdomator uh, and they um, go to sleep and wake them up, um, you know, 15 minutes later after you're done with your treatment. In terms of treatment duration, typically the first treatment is the longest one because um, that's when you're going to need to take a number of um, x-rays or port films in order to verify that you're um, in the right spot and that you're targeting the tumor area. And so the first treatment, uh, animals are typically under for about a half hour to uh, maybe an hour, hour and a half at the most, again, depending on how complicated the setup is. And, and that's with the fractionated course of radiation therapy. Each treatment after that, um, I typically tell owners it's going to take about 20 minutes uh, or so that the patient's on the table, um, another 20 minutes or so for them to wake up from their uh, anesthesia or their sedation, um, and then they can head out the door. The vast majority of the cases that I treat are outpatient. Owners come in or here for about an hour, and then they leave uh, with their pets. Other institutions, I know, have them drop off in the morning and then pick up in the evening, and they do their treatments throughout the day. Uh, different with stereotactic radiotherapy um, or surgery um, is that all those patients are anesthetized. Because you're giving a much larger dose and you're spreading it out over multiple beams, the total treatment time is a lot longer. Again, depending on how complicated the setup is, anywhere from an hour to the longest I've heard is four hours that a patient was under um, anesthesia for therapy, but mostly typically about an hour to two hours for the treatment itself just because of the number of beams that they have. The vast majority of animals tolerate that. Uh, daily anesthesia just fine. Um, we do find that come Friday of the week, uh, they're typically a little bit more uh, groggy, a little bit longer to wake up from the anesthesia, and owners will usually report that they're pretty sleepy that Friday night, mostly Saturday morning, but usually by Saturday afternoon, they're back to themselves, and they got Saturday afternoon and Sunday home to recover, and then they come back Monday, and we start it all over again. Also, because of the daily um, anesthesia and the sedations, they're food schedule is thrown off a little bit, um, so it's not unusual for our radiation patients to lose a couple of pounds um, during their radiation treatment. Um, again, um, for most cases, it's not a, um, a concern um, if the animal's already um, pretty um, anorexic um, to begin with, then we may be a little bit um, more concerned with that and try to change our protocol so that they're not um, under as heavy a sedation or um, out um, under anesthesia as long. And then also, um, I guess I will throw in that um, another consequence of radiation therapy that we occasionally see, um, especially during that first week of therapy, because of just the stress of coming into the hospital every day and the change in their food, it's not unusual for dogs to develop a little bit of stress colitis um, that first week, which we typically just manage with some metronidazole and typically clears up after a day or two. Dr. Lee, thank you so much. That was a fantastic overview of radiation therapy, and hopefully uh, we as veterinarians will do a better job at uh, offering this uh, modality to our pet owners with cancer. So thank you again for joining us for today's podcast.